0: Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. Good morning. Welcome to the pastor's Bible class here at St. Paul's DePere. We also send a special welcome to those of you who are listening on KFUO radio. As we prepare to study God's Word, we first go to Him in a word of prayer. Gracious God and Father, on this day we remember your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, and when you poured out your Holy Spirit upon him in holy baptism. We see, gracious God, the blessings that are ours as your baptized children, for you have poured out your Spirit on us. You have claimed us to be your beloved daughters and sons. We pray that this day you would open our minds and our hearts to the truth of your Holy Word, that we might not only hear it and understand it, but that we might also believe it. Gracious God, bless this time with your power and your presence as we come as your baptized children. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We are now in the epiphany season. Epiphany means manifestation, making known something that has been hidden for a long time. This epiphany season is all about God making his beloved Son known to the whole world. The Epiphany season begins on Epiphany, thus the twelfth day of Christmas, January the 6th. It begins with the story of the Magi from the east coming to see the Christ child. It continues on this day with the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River and the voice of God the Father declaring, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The lessons that we're going to be looking at today are actually the lessons for next Sunday, the second Sunday after Epiphany. They focus on the ministry of John the Baptizer and how he witnessed to who Jesus is. We go through the early ministry of Jesus, and the Epiphany season ends with the Transfiguration, the, the account of when Jesus was glorified on the mountain before his disciples. Moses and, and Elijah came and spoke with him about his departure. And so today we go back to the beginning. We, we want to look at an Old Testament lesson, an Epistle lesson, and a Gospel lesson that all speak about God revealing his Son to the world. Our first lesson is Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7. As we've been using Isaiah's texts for a long time through the Advent and Epiphany season, I would remind you that Isaiah means the, salva- the Lord is salvation. He wrote a vision concerning Jerusalem and Jer- Judea, and so he was, was writing to the northern kingdom. He began his ministry in 740 B.C., the, the year that King Uzziah died, We know that he continued his ministry through the death of Hezekiah in 686. And so he had a ministry of more than 50 years. During his time, the northern kingdom fell. And so Isaiah prophesied of what was to come to Judah and Jerusalem. He talked about the fall. He talked about the exile. And he talked about the time when God would allow his people to return. This was a time of political and spiritual, upheaval and change, a time much like our own. But Isaiah's role, 700 years before Christ, was to prepare God's people for the coming of the Messiah. And so, Isaiah 49, 1 through 7, begins with the words, listen to me. And at this point, the speaker isn't identified, but bear with me as I tell you this is the second of five servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And these are significant passages spoken by the Messiah. We heard the first one this morning in the words of Isaiah 42. It begins, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will establish my justice. These are all words written by Isaiah, spoken on behalf of of the the servant and the Lord Almighty, um, all by inspiration of God. And so it begins, listen to me, O coastlands, And give attention, you people from afar. So who is this servant speaking to? At this point, it doesn't sound like he's talking to Judah, Jerusalem. He's talking to the coastlands, peoples afar. He's calling the nations. He's calling the Gentiles. He's calling us to listen to the truth of his holy word. This is a message of God for all people. And so he goes on in verses 1 through 4. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, and in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Now the question that needs to be addressed at the very beginning is, who is this servant? Who is the one who's doing the talking in these five servant songs of Isaiah? Well, there's all kinds of debate among the theologians. Some would say he's talking about Cyrus, the Persian king, who would who would defeat the Babylonians, deliver God's people from exile, actually pay for them to return and rebuild the temple. Between chapter forty-two, the first servant song, and chapter forty-nine, this servant song, there is a, a long section about Cyrus the Persian king, especially chapter 45. And that's led many scholars to believe that the servant that God was raising up was none other than this Persian who really didn't know God, who was simply allowing people to go home so that there could be political peace in his land. And the question has always been, is is that what God was really promising his people? Simply the opportunity to go home and rebuild the temple and start over again? Was that all that God had in mind? And the answer is no, God must have surely had more than that. Other scholars have been led to believe that this servant is a prophet. Notice that these verses, especially um, verse 2, talks about a mouth. Someone speaking on God's behalf. Could it be Isaiah himself? Or some have uh, given the opinion that maybe it was the prophet Jeremiah. Because we know that in in Jeremiah, God said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and I called you there to be my spokesman. But look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, He said to me, You are my servant, Israel. That has led scholars to believe that the servant is really the nation of Israel, God's people. And they had a duty to speak the word to the whole world. But we know how miserably Israel had failed again and again and again. And so there's another theory, and I believe it's the correct one. It's talking about the true Israel, the one to whom God promised and fulfilled throughout all history. When God spoke a word, things happened. And, and here, once again, we're talking about the Messiah, really, the one who fulfilled all of God's promises to his people, the one who would speak the word. A sharp sword would pierce, would come from his mouth, the book of Revelation says. This, This is the one that God had chosen to be his special servant. Notice it talks about how he was named from his mother's womb. We've just been through the Advent Christmas season. We heard the account of of how God spoke to Mary and how God spoke to Joseph and how this child was conceived in his mother's womb by the Holy Spirit Joseph was told to give him the name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins it goes on to talk about uh, this true Israel who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies and then it talks about how How this one felt that there were times when he labored in vain. How people wouldn't listen. We think of of our Savior in his state of humiliation. How he had all glory, all power. He gave it all up, came down to earth, became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Martin Luther simplifies everything for us. When he says simply that from this point on, the book of Isaiah is about nothing but Christ. And as we read these words today, I want you to try to interpret them in light of our understanding as New Testament Christians. This is Jesus talking. This is Jesus pre-incarnation. This is the son of God speaking 700 years before his actual birth, telling the world what he was going to do. So we begin in verse 5. Now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel? I'll make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now he quotes the Lord, Yahweh. And he says, here is here's the mission that was given to me by God. This is the reason why I was sent into the world. To bring back, to, to restore Jacob. To gather Israel. Remember they had been, they, they would be in exile. They would be scattered throughout the world. And now God is promising I'm going to bring them all back together once again. But it wasn't just about Israel. Notice it says, and he will be a light for the nations to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Verse 6 is, is an important, important passage in the Old Testament. It's been called the, the Great Commission of the Old Testament. It reveals God's plan. It, it, it isn't just about the Jews that God was, was laying out his plan of salvation It was a plan for all nations. God would rescue all people. We we hear a reflection of this in in the song of Simeon. Remember the song that we often sing after communion, the nunc dimittis? Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. A light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon got it. He understood what the servant was trying to say here in Isaiah 49. It's not just for the Jews. This is salvation for all people. And this was God's plan from the beginning. In Acts chapter 13, verses 46 through 48, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch. And they began their ministry as they always did, speaking to the Jews but when the Jews rejected them Paul spoke plainly to them and said we're turning our attention away from the Jews and our ministry is to the Gentiles and he quotes these words from Isaiah 49 so clearly if we allow scripture to interpret scripture, New Testament to interpret the old, Isaiah 49 is talking about God's plan of salvation for all people. Verse seven, thus says the Lord, the redeemer of Israel and his holy one, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Now the servant is quoting the Lord, and he uses two of the, the of Isaiah's favorite names for God. First of all, he calls him the Redeemer of Israel. Redeemer was... Uh, a key, understand, a key word in, in the book of Isaiah, a key word for God's people. When a, a man or woman got himself, themselves into financial difficulties, they could sell possessions or they could sell themselves into slavery. And it was like a, a loan in which in time, if they had the money, they could go back and, and pay the price to redeem what belonged to them. But if a a man couldn't redeem what belonged to him or couldn't set himself free from slavery, a kinsman could act on his behalf. And this kinsman was known as the Redeemer. Putting this into perspective, God's people had sold themselves into slavery to sin. And there was no way that they could set themselves free. But the Lord was called the Redeemer their kinsmen who would come down and pay the price that would set them free from their slavery to sin a key name more than a key name here is the ministry of Jesus the Redeemer of the world the Holy One he's the one who is set apart from his creation he is perfect he is without sin and this one would come down into the world and penetrate humanity. He would become human. Here is a word about the incarnation. His reason for coming was to make people holy. To remove all that separates mankind from God. So that they can spend all of eternity with God in his holiness. And so the, the servant refers to the Lord as the Redeemer and the Holy One. But this servant would be deeply despised, abhorred, rejected. Clearly, things were not always as they seemed to be. Yes, our Savior experienced a state of humiliation. He was despised and rejected by his own people. He was nailed to a cross. But notice it says that kings and princes will bow before him. Clearly, St. Paul said in Philippians 2, Before him, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This servant, had one ministry, and that was to redeem not just the Jews, but all of mankind. Isn't it amazing that while you have a passage as clear as this, promising a Messiah, a Savior, that the people of Israel never seem to get it? Why was it that the Jews had such a hard time dur- during Jesus' ministry understanding as he reached out to tax collectors and all kinds of sinners and non-Christians, or, uh, non-Jews, and, and praised their faith? They didn't understand. They thought the Messiah was all about them. But God had already told them 700 years before. In fact, from the very beginning, God had told them that salvation was for all, that a Savior would come for lost mankind. And so this passage is clearly uh, the Great Commission of the Old Testament, uh, a passage used throughout the New Testament to talk about the mission of God to the world. Any thoughts, questions about Isaiah 49, this second servant song? Let's turn to the second lesson then, the epistle from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul is is writing to the Christians in Corinth. This was the, Corinth was the leading city in Greece. Now Athens was the capital, but this was like, the commercial center. All kinds of trade passed through this community. It was a a city which is estimated in those days was about 200,000 in population. It was a, a multicultural city. Remember this was in Greece. It was established as a Roman colony. It was a retirement community for Roman veterans it was this trade center where all kinds of goods passed through and so there were people from all over the world in corinth it was also a center of idol worship and a great deal of immorality there and it was a tough place to start a church because these people were enamored with their gods and with their philosophy and with their rhetoric and with everything Greek and everything that was Roman and they had no time whatsoever for Christianity but in Acts chapter 18 Paul arrived there in 5051 50, 51, and he started a congregation among the first people he met were Aquila and Priscilla they had a trade as, as tent makers and Saint Paul went to work right alongside Aquila and Priscilla. And remember, the whole time he was there, he made sure that he didn't impose anything on anybody financially. He earned his own way being a tent maker. These people became converts to Christianity, and um, we'll see later on in chapter 18 how they also became witnesses. Paul apparently had a very successful ministry there, among former Jews and also Greeks and people from all over the world who happened to be in Corinth but in time Jewish opposition arose he started his ministry in the synagogue but as as he gained a a greater following the Jews became jealous they put him out of the synagogue and he started the church in a house right next door to the synagogue in time they ended up taking Paul before the the proconsul Gallio and accusing him of stirring up the community with false religion when Gallio heard their charges against him that this was a religious matter Gallio with an understanding of separation of church and state said I'm not gonna have anything to do with this and so the the matter was dropped but but Paul had this challenge, a strong challenge from the Jews, to stop preaching Christ. Well, he stayed there for a year and a half. He became the first pastor of the congregation. He used that, that, that town and that congregation as kind of a mission base to carry the gospel throughout this portion of Greece. Now, Paul moved on in time. He traveled to Ephesus, and as soon as he left, problems began to arise. Paul had preached the freedom of the gospel, that we are free from sin because Christ had died for us. Well, there were people who began to abuse their Christian freedom. They began to live as they pleased. Many of them went back to their their pagan ways, and began to live in all kinds of immorality. They began to be tempted by the, the gods that were worshipped in Corinth. And so there was all kinds of factions that began, began to arise and caused division in the church. They argued about some of the same kinds of things that we worship, um, argue about in the church today. They argued about worship and how formal worship should be, and, and uh, making sure that things were done decently in order. They argued about the role of women in the church, and what the woman's proper place was in the Christian community. And they were argued about the Lord's Supper, and who should commune, and what was really taking place in the Lord's Supper. They argued about spiritual gifts, they had all kinds of spiritual gifts given to them. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit more later, but, but, but imagine a, a congregation that was divided with all these, these doctrinal differences, and then there was all this immorality, and they were mixing into this all kinds of pagan worship. And so you can imagine how little groups began to form and how the church was being divided between them so Paul visited according to 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 12 and 13 Paul heard about the problems he went back there and as the former pastor he kind of set everybody straight but there was little change and so he wrote what he called an unpleasant letter. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. We don't know exactly what he said, but but apparently it was pretty frank and to the point they were abusing the church. Well, the Corinthians responded to this unpleasant letter with kind of an unpleasant letter of their own. They raised all kinds of questions, but they also challenged Paul's leadership. And so it was after all, All of that trying to to bring the church back into reconciliation again that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. And it too is a strong, very practical and frank letter, but we can't ever forget that Paul was their pastor. While Paul came at them very strongly on certain issues, it was always done out of love to bring them back into the fold. He followed the usual letter-writing style of those days. It was from and to and a blessing that follows, and then he got into the meat of the letter. Today we hear the from, the to, and the greeting. It's from Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. So Paul comes to them as their former pastor, He says, this is what I taught you, remember? But there were those who were challenging his leadership, and so then he came to them as an apostle of Christ Jesus. By the will of God, this was God's doing, this was God's word. In a sense saying, listen up people, this isn't just my opinion. This is God's will for you, and you had better pay attention. They needed correction. And in time, Paul would rebuke them. They needed to listen because Paul had important things to say. It also came from Sosthenes. He was probably a member of this Corinthian congregation who traveled with Paul, who was with Paul in Ephesus. And he, he may have been the, the secretary who actually wrote down what Paul was saying. And because this greeting also came from Sosthenes, it's like saying, it's not just me. Y'all know Sosthenes, he's in complete agreement with this too. Verse 2, it's to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ Christ both their Lord and ours. It's to the church of God. That's an important expression. You see, what they had forgotten is it it was God's church, not theirs. So many times I, I have dealt with congregations that were in conflict. And the words that I so often hear is my church whenever I hear those words my church I begin to cringe sometimes pastors speak them sometimes congregants speak them but when it's my church I know there's gonna be conflict in my church it's gonna be my way in my church this is what we're gonna teach in my church And it's not necessarily your church. It's my church. And so right from the beginning, Paul reminds them, it isn't your church. And it isn't your church. And all these little groups who are claiming they have the church, no, this is the church of God. Congregations need to be reminded of that too. And I haven't seen it so much here at St. Paul, but over there is the kitchen who owns that kitchen well it's the church's kitchen the school's kitchen of course but if the youth group goes in there and messes up and doesn't clean up afterwards the school principal or perhaps the ladies aide is going to be all over their case whose music program is it we love dr bender no question about that but sometimes it's it's my church my music program my style of worship no whenever you get to that point it's it's about me it's not about god and so paul nails them right from the beginning if they were paying any attention this is god's church these people are sanctified They are called to be saints. They are holy people, forgiven in the blood of Jesus, even though they weren't acting that way. And so so while it seems, and I I believe Paul was being very sincere calling these people saints, he dearly loved them, he's also kind of sticking it to them in the very first words. You folks are saints, and you aren't acting that way right now. Let's pay attention. Let's believe as the people of God. And furthermore, it ain't just about you. It's it's written to all those in every place. There is one church. There is one Lord. Their Lord, your Lord, our Lord. This is God's church, and let's not forget that. He uses the words in verse 3 that we've become familiar with at the beginning of all of the sermons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a blessing. This isn't just a wish. This is Paul actually bestowing on these people once again the grace of God. And it was by grace through faith that they had been saved. That was the starting point of the relationship that the pastor had with his people. Because they were saved, they could also have peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. So we use the same words as as we begin each sermon. Grace to you and peace. Not just a wish, but expressing a blessing from God's word at the very beginning of every sermon. Verse 4 through 9, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. As their former pastor, he still loved these people. And notice that, that here, St. Paul doesn't go into a great deal of... of uh, Praise and, and thanks to them for the work that they have been doing, as he sometimes does in other letters. He's giving thanks to God for them, for what God had been doing among them. And so he thanked God for the grace of God given to them, enough, enough, in ex, uh, 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 saying to them essentially, you know, all the credit for what is happening among you goes to God. It's not something you've deserved, not something that you've earned, not because this is your church, but it's all by the grace of God. He says, you've been enriched. Enriched in all speech and knowledge. Those people valued rhetoric and philosophy. These were important things to them as Romans in a Greek colony. It was because of this This speech and knowledge, this rhetoric and philosophy that they had become so puffed up. They liked to argue with one another. And it was this speech and knowledge that was causing all the divisions. But they had a greater testimony that had been given among them. And that's the testimony of Christ that Paul had preached to them while he had been their pastor. This Testimony about Jesus had been confirmed among them. They had seen the growth. They had seen the power of God's work and God's word among them. They knew that it was the truth. Stop the fighting. Get rid of all the, the pride. Get rid of all the factions. You know the power of God at work in your midst. He says, you're not lacking in any spiritual gift. they had been having this war about spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues and the interpretation of tongues and which which of the spiritual gifts were more important than the other spiritual gifts. He says, you've been enriched in every way. You have the word and the sacraments. You've been given wisdom and faith. And love, all of chapter 13, you know, is, is about love. There's service, virtue, devotion, patience, endurance. There were miracles that were happening, happening among them. People were being healed in miraculous ways. People were speaking in tongues and interpreting those tongues. They were enriched in every way. And the truth is, every congregation... Yes. I've I've been to churches in Iowa, for example, where there were 11 people in worship, including me. And I was 10 years younger, 15 years younger than anyone else in the congregation. And these people were talking about how how difficult it was to continue to be the church, how they didn't have a lot of people, they didn't have a Sunday school, they didn't have big offerings, they couldn't afford full-time ministry, they, the whole time they kept telling me how poor they were, when the truth of the matter is they were rich. They had everything. They had the Word of God which was being proclaimed in their midst. They had the sacraments, they had baptism. They had the Lord's Supper. God continued to bless these people with all kinds of wisdom and understanding and a love for the Lord Jesus and a desire to send the gospel to the ends of the earth. Sometimes we look at our church and it's not everything we think a church ought to be. That it's lacking in this area or lacking in that area. That our church is weak and it can't do But Paul's words to the Corinthians and God's word to every Christian congregation is, you've been blessed, you've been enriched in every way. Take the gifts that God has given to you and use them for the sake of the kingdom. You are rich. Then he says, you're waiting, remember? You're waiting for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep this in focus, folks. The Lord is coming again. Now take all these riches that God has given you, and instead of fighting one another about all these things, use them as you wait for Jesus to come back again. And you know that he's coming back again soon. Be blessed. Then these words, they almost seem out of place. After after laying out all of this, and it's kind of the outline of where he's going to go and all the issues he's going to to go into, he says, God is faithful. And, And you could read right past that without paying any attention, but right in the middle of that, he says, God is faithful. God has promised to enrich you, God has promised that Jesus is coming back again. All of God's gifts to you are true, all of God's word to you is true. God is faithful. And no matter what's going on in the world around you, no matter how much you're fighting within, remember this one thing. God is being faithful to you. Even when you're not, even when when you're fighting one another, God is faithful. You know, that's, that's one of his most important attributes. God will always be faithful. He will always keep his promises to you. And that really set the stage for what Paul was about to say. Take a quick glance at those verses. Nine verses. How many times does Paul use the words Jesus Christ? Read through it quickly. I counted... Nine times in nine verses. What do you think 1 Corinthians is going to be about? It's all about Jesus, isn't it? And and so in the midst of whatever's going on in this congregation, folks, remember it's Jesus Christ. And during this epiphany season, what are we all about? Jesus Christ, God making his son known to the whole world. Any thoughts about 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9? And we turn to the familiar story of, in John 1, verses 29 through 42, the gospel for next Sunday. We're still in John chapter 1. John chapter 1 was the the prologue of the gospel. It was the gospel for our Christmas Day. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It goes on to talk about the light shining into the darkness. The light is the life of man. So, just a few verses after this, we're back to talking about John the Baptist. Notice that in John's Gospel, as we'll see, there is no account of the baptism of Jesus. But there is the testimony given by John the Baptist to the baptism of Jesus. Right? And the verses that come just before our, our lesson, verses, or chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, the Jews had sent a delegation. And in a sense, they were saying, John, who are you? And what gives you the right to be out here in the desert baptizing people, calling people to repentance? And John testified, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one you don't know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. What was John's mission? What was John's purpose for being? What was his vocation? It was simply to point people to Jesus. I'm going to have to describe this picture to all of you, especially those who are on the radio. This is a picture which hangs in, in our living room. It's by a Missouri artist from the Kansas City area. His name is Bob Holloway. Bob does some unique things in, in his artwork. This is one of my favorites. If you look, there is a two-foot-tall Jesus standing in the middle of this narrow print. And so you get the idea from Bob Holloway that this is all about Jesus. But if you look in the background, there's a three-inch-tall figure, and it's John the Baptist. And the words are, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, Jesus is standing in the midst of this. He's holding a little lamb. If you look closely up on his shoulder, there is a dove. It looks like the heavens are somewhat open. But across the top of the picture is the melody line. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And if you look really closely at this print, you'll notice that there are figures in Jesus' robe, and its little children reaching up to Jesus. It's there to remind us of who Jesus is, the Savior of the world, of course. But it tells the story of John the baptizer becoming smaller and smaller and smaller, while all of the focus is on Jesus. John's role in life was to be number two, to prepare the way for Jesus. Leonard Bernstein was once asked, what is the most difficult um, musical instrument in in the orchestra? You know what his answer was? Second fiddle. Nobody likes to be second fiddle. We all like to be number one it's hard for us Christians to understand that we're not number one our role in life is to point people to Jesus to say behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world he is the Lord and we are his people and every time we get that backwards every time we put ourselves up as the the one who's most important that it has to be our way instead of his way we get ourselves into trouble what's the most important uh, what's the, the most difficult role to fill second fiddle in your marriage what's your role second fiddle in raising children what's your role second fiddle as a pastor what's your role second fiddle you can go through whatever your vocation in life is and put it all into proper perspective what's your role it's to be second fiddle and Jesus is always to be lord and that's the point of today's story John the baptist pointed people to Jesus and and so it it begins in verse uh, chapter 1 verse 29 the next day we're assuming that Those that same delegation from Jerusalem who had been giving John a hard time are still there. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So the day before, John had made this testimony saying, I'm not worthy. I'm not the man. Now he is putting a a positive perspective on it, saying, this is the one. The next day. He shouted again when he saw Jesus coming toward him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. i like to think that's the purpose of every sermon. What's a, what's a preacher's job? To say to people, look, look, pay attention. There's the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Now the question is, what what's the lamb what's what kind of lamb is he talking about Old Testament uses lambs in lots of different settings there was the lamb of the Passover you remember the they slaughtered a perfect yearling lamb they collected its blood they smeared it on the doorpost of their home they ate the Passover meal and that night the angel of death passed over Egypt and in every home where the lamb had not been eaten, where the blood was not smeared on the doorframe, the firstborn child died. And so the lamb was offered as a substitute for the firstborn. The, the lamb protected God's people from death. As they wandered in the wilderness, God began to talk to them about sacrifices being offered at the tabernacle and there were two lambs that were offered every day there was one lamb in the morning, one lamb at twilight these were offered with uh, food offerings right at the entrance of the tent. Imagine you were an Israelite the camp is set up all around the tabernacle that sits in the middle of everything and there's a, a lamb being offered up and you can smell this wonderful aroma And this is where God was said to come down and dwell among his people. It was a a constant reminder of God's presence in their midst, an offering to God, reminding them of, of the relationship that he had with them. There were other lambs that were used in offerings. and Always it had to be a perfect lamb without blemish, a yearling lamb. Israelites were commanded to offer peace offerings or fellowship offerings or sin offerings for the forgiveness of sins. So what did John mean when he pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Perfect, sinless, young, sacrificed, that was being offered to remind God's people of the relationship between God and his people, the one who sacrificed his life for the sin of the world. John, from the very beginning, knew who Jesus was and why he had come. Look, he said, there's the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And he goes back to saying, after me one, comes one who ranks before me, because, of course, John was born before Jesus. Or Jesus, he started his ministry before Jesus, but ultimately he's saying, it's all about Jesus. Verse 32 John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. As I said, John's gospel doesn't have an account of the baptism of Jesus, but John bears witness. John said, I saw it. It really happened. The heavens opened the voice declared this is my beloved son the spirit descended and it remained on him and I'm here as a simple witness tell you what I've seen and what I've heard and what I know to be about this Jesus God had given me a sign he had told me that if I saw the Spirit of God descend and rest and remain on someone He would be the Christ. He's the one I came to prepare for. I baptize you with with water, but after me comes one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism was not the same as Christian baptism. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. The baptism that we Christians recognize that we understand there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit in which God through water and the Word pours out His Spirit upon people he brings them to faith he claims them as his own John is saying there is a much greater baptism than the one that I've been talking about and then he says plainly at the end I am bearing witness this is the Son of God. That's what John the baptizer wanted people to know. Jesus is the Son of God. That's what John the author of the Gospel wanted people to know. At the end he, he tells um, at the end of his Gospel in, in chapters 20 and 21 he repeats it over again these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that by believing you might have life in his name. And so John, the evangelist tells the story of John, the baptizer and saying, John at the very beginning said, this Jesus is the son of God. And my role was simply to point people to this Jesus. Verse 35, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, Lamb of God. Like a broken record, he kept pointing people to Jesus. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which John explains means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Two of John's disciples, now, now understand as second fiddle once again, John wasn't trying to, to gather a group of disciples around him. John's role was to point people to Jesus. And so two of John's disciples are there, And once again, John the baptizer says, Behold, the Lamb of God. So they followed Jesus. And that was John's goal all along. Jesus turned and he saw them and he asked them, What are you seeking? In other words, what is it that you really want from me? That's the question I think Jesus asks of every Christian. What do you want from me? I, I listen to preachers on TV, and, and the word, it, it drives me absolutely nuts, and I've mentioned it before, but it really bugs me. I watch these shows, and it's, if you will send in your seed $1,000, you will open up the gates of heaven, and God will make you rich. Is that all you really want from Jesus? They, they never, ever talk about him dying on a cross for the forgiveness of sins. What is it that you want from Jesus? You want healing? You want wealth? You want power? That isn't enough. What do you want from Jesus? He offers forgiveness and life And salvation. He offers you so much more. This is a powerful question Jesus asks of all of us. What is it that you want from me? And their answer sounds kind of silly, but where are you staying? The reason they ask is Lord, we want to stay there too. We want to be with you. What do you want from Jesus? To know where he is so that you can be in his presence too. It's a great story. got a couple seconds yet. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, who was Simon Peter's brother. It's likely the other one, I think, was John. Although John is always too modest to say, and I was there too. Andrew was Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we found the Messiah which means the christ he brought him to jesus jesus looked at him and said you're simon son of john you shall be called cephas which means peter andrew is typical of every new convert you ever talk to somebody who's a a new convert to christianity they are on fire they want to tell everybody what what uh, they have come to believe. Whenever I'd have an adult information class, and, and you could see the lights go on in people's mind as they came to understand who Jesus was, one of the first things we did is, will you share that with your relatives? Will you tell others the good news? And they were eager to do it. They had found something that, that had been missing in their lives all along. The best evangelists in a congregation is the new members who just came to know Jesus. That's what Andrew does here. He's all excited. I found the Messiah. Finally, the one we've been waiting for for centuries has come. I found him. Peter, you've got to come see too. And then John is saying, and you know the rest of the story. Peter became the rock, and on the basis of his faith, he became the foundation of the church. And this was all how it happened. Andrew, his brother, had found the Messiah and wanted Peter to know too. Time for us to quit. Let's let's close with a word of prayer. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your holy word given to make us wise and to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In the Old Testament lesson, we heard how how you pointed mankind to to Jesus. We heard St. Paul point people to Jesus. We heard John the baptizer saying, behold the lamb as he pointed to Jesus. We pray, gracious God, that, that you would open our minds and our hearts that we might see Jesus. And like your servant Andrew, we might become Excited, zealous, eager to share that good news in our lives among those we know, those we love, and to the ends of the earth. Be with us through this week. Keep us as your dear children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace.